What a joy it is to be here with you tonight. I greet you in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's, it's good to be here at Christ Covenant Church. Uh, yesterday I preached at the Church of the Apostles in Atlanta. And uh, what I want to say is, is that, that we're naming churches better now. Uh, <laughs> when I grew up, it was, it, was, it was wild imagination. First Baptist Church, Second Baptist Church. Uh, and uh, and I, I like, I mean, when I got up at the Church of the Apostles, I've been uh, glad to be there many times preaching. I always say, you know, that's what we want every church to be, the Church of the Apostles. We want to, we want to stand in the Apostles' doctrine. You know, we, want to, uh, we, want to, we want the disciples to walk in and hear us preach and say, that's exactly what I preached. It's the same gospel. That's what we hope for. And uh, Christ and covenant, my goodness. Um, may we just live up to our names. Uh, it's wonderful to be here at Christ Covenant Church, wonderful to be with you, and uh, thank you for those kind words. Good to be here with you, Tom, and I appreciate those kind words of introduction. It's always interesting when I hear that, I, I be reminded of some of the places I've been, especially giving academic lectureships. I mentioned Columbia and some of the other places, University of Richmond, interesting. Uh, you, you, it, it's, it's a long list, I'm, I'm humbled to say, but the interesting thing is, is that it's not always the same thing. I'm not, I'm not always on these campuses for the same reason. Some of these campuses now have someone like me on because it's kind of a National Geographic deal. Uh, it's like there's this exotic tribe. Uh, they're called evangelical Christians. And, uh, and, and everybody in the country used to know what they're like, but we don't know what they're like anymore. So in order to know what a Christian believes, orthodox biblical Christian, you've got to bring someone in. Let's just say at Columbia University, I was asked to, uh, the, uh, as one of the parts of the events, to be on a panel. And uh, I, I, was, uh, I was under a lot of pressure. I, I, I felt that pressure because it was like uh, all these different worldviews are presented, and now they said something like, and now, Christianity. Uh, <laughs> okay. I felt like uh, the Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 17, but uh, it, w it was not a good day, um, just in terms of the comfort level. Um, that was, a, it was an extremely secular moment in an extremely secular place, but uh, it is interesting to be reminded of it just, just hearing that. Uh, we're living in a different time. We're living on the other side of something. There once was a time when Columbia University was known as King's College, because by the way, we had a king. And uh, once we didn't have a king, it was not very convenient to call it King's College. So it became Columbia, uh, part of the, uh, the New World, Columbia University. And, and it was once established with clear commitments to Christian doctrine, Orthodox Christian doctrine, 39 Articles Christian doctrine, Book of Common Prayer Christian doctrine. But of course now that's not only an embarrassment, they got over it, they don't even remember it anymore. Uh, the average student in Columbia University has no idea this was once an institution officially committed to the historic biblical Christianity, confessional, creedal Christianity. That's just beyond their imagination. And, and we have continuing evidence wherever we live, wherever we go. We're on the other side of something big that happened, something really big. And you know, it's, you look at human history and there are lots of really big events. We're in the 500th anniversary month of one of the biggest of all, with the Protestant Reformation. We're nearing the day 500 years after Martin Luther posted those 95 theses on the door, which basically meant he was starting an argument. There aren't very many arguments that have lasted 500 years. And on the very same terms of that argument 500 years ago. It's one of the most glorious moments in the history of Christianity, 500 years. But none of us, I dare say, was alive when Martin Luther began the Reformation, or when he died. We're talking about 500 years ago. That's, that's one quarter of human history since the time of Christ. But many of us can now say, in my lifetime, I've experienced massive change. Social change used to move very, very slowly. The wheels of history ground very, very slowly. Uh, you didn't see a whole lot of change in your lifetime. Social change on an issue like slavery, for example, the, uh, from, the, from the height of the slave trade and, uh, to the uh, end of the slave trade, which was one of the biggest moral revolutions and one of the most important moral revolutions in human history, that took about 400 years. Kawaya, uh, Kwame Apaya at, uh, at Yale describes how you know, it took about 400 years for the concept of honor to shift 
from which it was honorable to be involved in the slave business to which it was abysmally dishonorable. So how long? Hundreds of years. Hundreds of years. And, uh, and we should be very thankful for that revolution. Sometimes moral revolutions are for good. But the point is how fast they now take place. We're living on the other side of a moral revolution that is shorter than my lifetime. I was born uh, this week, 58 years ago. And uh, there once was a time when I couldn't imagine being eight, uh, much less being 58. But here it is. Uh, the clock ticks. The calendar turns. But I was born into a different world than I live in now. Not just 500 years or 1,500 years. It's just 50 years. But in many ways, it's a lot less than that. So on the briefing tomorrow morning, I'm going to talk about the new Associated Press Style Guide. The Associated Press Style Guide, don't underrate it, very important. Every reporter basically for a print publication in America is going to feel beholden to the Associated Press Style Guide. Every editor. So the Associated Press Style Guide, they announced last week, is going to change so that the words that we've used for all of human history, like boy and girl, are now going to be very difficult to use. And this comes the week after the Boy Scouts announced that the Boy Scouts are going to include girls. All kinds of issues there. The big thing is that what that's a part of is the Boy Scouts ceasing to be the Boy Scouts. And that's just a part of the background issue to all of this. I tweeted last week, isn't that an interesting thing? If you told me that I was going to tweet, I would have thought that meant <laughs> it was a bird. But uh, nonetheless, I put out a tweet last week saying we're becoming the kind of people who can now use the words boy and girl only with irony or nostalgia. Wouldn't have believed that was possible even uh, 20 or 30 years ago. Or I wouldn't have believed it would be so powerfully possible as we see it taking place today. The Associated Press New Style Guide says that you should avoid saying that someone was born male or born female. Well, I'm going to fast forward here. Good luck with that one. In the, in the last book I, I, I wrote, We Cannot Be Silent on many of these issues, I pointed out that there was this very committed sexual revolutionary, uh, very happy with the direction of the revolution, but frustrated that it's not taking place fast enough, said that uh, we're going to have to get to the point where it's no longer a reflex for the doctor and the people in the delivery room to say it's a boy or it's a girl. Well, Sorab Amari at Commentary that I'll cite in the morning said, you know, the Associated Press has set itself over against human nature. Well, that's absolutely true. It's absolutely true. Because I can tell you, um, parents are still going to say it's a boy or it's a girl. And, and by the way, we should be thankful for that. Thanks be to God, parents aren't going to follow the Associated Press style guide. But the point is that you've got the Associated Press, just one barometer of the society saying, we can't use these words anymore. You can't, and you can't even use the term. You can't say born male, born female. We're on the other side of a massive revolution. And we sense it and we feel it. A words as basic to human existence as marriage and family. They're all now controverted words. They're, they're words that are considered to be used wrongly, hate speech. Uh, we're, we're in a situation in which the world's been turned upside down right before our eyes. And, and when this happens, and, and it's happened before to Christians. That's, we're going to get to that in a moment. It's happened before to Christians. But when it happens, Christians tend uh, to react defensively and with a sense of moral panic and, uh, and, and, and tend to respond uh, very pessimistically as if, Doom is imminent. Well, is doom imminent? And the answer is, in many ways, yes. So let me tell you the bad news. The bad news is things are really getting worse in a hurry. And the bad news is this will come with ill effects, with bad effects. They're going to come and be visible in a hurry. Most of them are already visible even now. But the good news is, as we need to remind ourselves, even in the beginning, that Jesus Christ is Lord. And he said of his church, upon this rock I'll build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So let's just begin by saying we're not going to panic. And we're not even going to be pessimistic. Uh, I had a reporter call me sometime back and say after an event, are you pessimistic or optimistic? And I said, I'm neither because I'm a Christian. It perplexed the reporter and said, what do you mean? I said, I can't be optimistic because I'm a Christian. 
And I can't be pessimistic because I'm a Christian. I live in hope. That's a very different thing. Uh, I live in hope. It's a sure and certain hope. It's a hope named Jesus Christ. But I can't be optimistic as if, yeah, everything is going to turn out fine uh, because I've read the scripture. I can't be an optimist. But I can't be a pessimist because if Jesus Christ is Lord, then we can't possibly be pessimistic again because we've read the book. So we live in hope. Hope's a very different thing than optimism or pessimism. And the thing I said to the reporter is this. If you can call me and say, after this headline, are you optimistic and pessimistic, you're making my point. The Christian is neither optimistic nor pessimistic, headline by headline. Uh, we live in biblical faith. Our confidence is in Christ. We live in hope. He will accomplish his purposes. And furthermore, as we will remind ourselves tonight, our ultimate hope isn't in this culture. If our ultimate hope is in this culture, we are of all people most to be pitied. Uh, because this culture will never deliver on its promises. This culture will never live up to its expectations. The chief reason for which is this culture is made up of us. And people like us, sinners like us. So let's ask a question. We're not going to panic. We're never going to be pessimistic, nor are we going to be optimistic. We're not going to try to, we're not, we're, we're not going to allow our moods, theologically speaking, to rise and fall on the headlines of the day. People ask me, how can you do the briefing every day? And I say, because Jesus Christ is Lord. Uh, it is because every time I end the briefing, I say, I'll meet you again tomorrow for the briefing. Now, there's an asterisk to that. That's Lord willing. And there's an asterisk to that, meaning Jesus may prevent me from being here with the briefing tomorrow. But whatever it is, one day, all of these headlines are going to be irrelevant. And uh, we'll be in the kingdom of Christ. But we're not there yet, and he left us here for a purpose, and that's another part of the story. But before we get there, how did, how did we get here? How did, how did we arrive at this moment? How, how did all of a sudden things that were unspeakable become common? And, and how did the world get turned upside down? We are experiencing what's called a moral revolution. A moral revolution. You asked me to speak on the theme aftermath. Aftermath was the, is the theme of many of the things I talk about. It was supposed to be the title of my book. There's a story. The book wasn't entitled Aftermath because here's a little thing you need to know. Authors don't get to choose titles. Publishers choose titles. And sometimes there is a war between the publisher and the author over the title. So I had always envisioned the book as Aftermath. And it was scheduled to come out right after the Obergefell decision by the U.S. Supreme Court. Aftermath just made perfect sense to me. It only made sense to you. That's, uh, that's how you entitled the night. It makes sense to Christians because we live in this. The publisher said, no, 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 no. Nobody's going to know what Aftermath refers to. And they changed the title to We Cannot Be Silent. Now, I agree, we cannot be silent. But the point is, we find ourselves in the aftermath of something we're trying to figure out. As thinking Christians, how are we to understand this? By the way, the publisher also said, we can't call it Aftermath because there's a book entitled Aftermath that has to do with the aftermath of the... Uh, of the Great Recession of 2007-2008. I thought, well, if you think that's an aftermath, <laughs> you ought to consider the aftermath I'm talking about. This should be, just let that one be aftermath. Let this one be aftermath. <laughs> Doesn't work in publishing anyway. Well, we're in a moral revolution. And, and it's not just moral change. Moral change happens all the time. Uh, moral change takes place in a society because uh, moral change can be rather small. Uh, but moral revolutions mean the world turns upside down. Theo Hobson, a British theologian, I think defines a moral revolution better than anyone else. He said three things have to take place for a moral revolution to occur. The first thing is what was forbidden has to be celebrated. So that's the first condition. Something was forbidden. It's now not merely accepted. It's celebrated. The second condition is what was celebrated must be forbidden. Okay. So that's interesting. That's helpful. So for a, a moral reversal to take place, it's not only that what was forbidden or what was condemned must be celebrated, but what was celebrated must be condemned. And the third thing, very tellingly, he says, the third point is this. The third necessary move is that those who will not celebrate must be condemned. So that's interesting. So that, that's how we see change taking place. What was condemned is celebrated. What was celebrated is condemned. And those who will not celebrate are condemned. And, and that's what's going on. Yesterday we were in Atlanta. It was the gay pride parade. Okay. Uh, and by the way, 
uh, gay pride was a word that seemed to be satisfactory to that community 20 years ago. It's not satisfactory today. Now it's an expanding list of letters, LGBTQI, and it goes on and on and on, and it won't stop. Predictably, P will be there soon for polygamy, polyamory. And the argument's already being made. And once you start this kind of revolution, one of the things we need to note is there's no way to stop it. The logic of it just continues to press on. And so we are experiencing it even now. So how? How did this happen? And how did it happen so quickly? This moral revolution, it took place not only within my lifetime, but it took place, we can even say, between 2007 and 2013. Now, those dates are a little arbitrary, but I'll tell you why I chose them. It's because the Pew Research Center surveyed Americans in one of the biggest surveys ever done in 2007, and then did it again in 2013. And the situation flipped between 2007 and 2013. Now, just a little footnote in the way these surveys happen. You have here a, uh, a, a, a ten, it's still just as telling, just as revealing it would otherwise be. But let's say you had 64% of Americans in 2007 saying that a man shouldn't be allowed to marry a man, a woman shouldn't be allowed to marry a woman. 2013, that's just six years later. You've got almost exactly the same majority saying, yes, a man should be allowed to marry a man, a woman should be allowed to marry a woman. And even Pew, they don't have a dog in the fight theologically. They're a secular organization. But even Pew said, here's what's really interesting. By the time you do a survey this large, you're asking some of the same people. Some of the same people said in 2007, no, unthinkable, can't happen. 2013 said, you can't resist it. It would be wrong to oppose it. Because it's, it's the moral issue that's here. It's, it's wrong, be wrong to do it, and I'll be wrong to oppose it. Same people. As even Pew recognized, in human history is hard to imagine a moral revolution of this kind of speed. But there, there is another footnote here, and that is that you don't really know in these surveys what people think about anything. Some of you in this room, statistically speaking, have either participated in one of these big survey instruments or you've refused to, <laughs> declined to. Uh, either way, what it tells us is how people think they're supposed to answer. That's what's really interesting. These surveys are how people think they're supposed to answer because it really doesn't tell you what they believe. It tells you how they think they're supposed to answer. But that's telling in itself. You have a majority of people who think they're supposed to say no, to which now you have the same people, a majority of the same people saying yes. How did that happen? Well, here's where as Christians, we need to be really careful to make sure we're beginning early enough. So, if you just think about the revolution we're experiencing, we'll talk about several dimensions of it, then we'll talk about how Christians respond to it in the second portion of the time allotted to me tonight. One of the first things we have to recognize is that sex always drives morality. At the center of every moral code, at the center of every, of, of every moral worldview is sex. It's always been that way. It's that way in the Bible. <laughs> As a matter of fact, it's so important in the Bible that we are told in Genesis 127, the, the creation mandate. It's to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And, uh, and, and, and just look at how early matters of sexuality and marriage and reproduction and family appear in Scripture. I mean, look at Genesis chapter 2. We're only two chapters in the Bible. And, and we have affirmed over and over again already, not only in the mandate to be multiply and fill the earth, but also in the explanation of what it means for a man and a woman to exist together and for a man to leave his mother and father and cleave to his wife. You know, that, that's, that's all made very clear in the first two chapters of Scripture. And then after sin, the regulations concerning sex, the, the morality that humans are to, to practice. And furthermore, we're told in Scripture, both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, in a passage like Romans chapter 1, that this is revealed in all of creation. The moral law is revealed in all of creation. Um, at the center of it is, is sex. And so if you're trying to turn a civilization upside down, well, sex is the way to do it. Marriage is the way to do it. Now just consider this. The most stable institution in human existence for millennia was marriage. Now, it's not to say that marriage didn't change. Marriage changed in terms of, of who could say who got married uh, as a man and a woman. Marriage changed. Even in the scripture, you see how God's determination that it's to be a man and a woman, as you find in Genesis 2, 
was even developed over against the background of polygamy and, uh, and, and multiple marriage. But then you have Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew answer the question and, said, and say, it was God's intention from the beginning that it be a man and a woman, a man and a woman. And what's really interesting is if you look throughout all human civilizations, as different as American as uh, human civilizations are, if you, if you look at virtually every human culture, every single one of them has come to privileging the unique relationship of a man and a woman in terms of exclusivity and in terms of paternity and maternity and in terms of responsibility for children. That's been true in every previous civilization. But the other day I found myself talking to a young man and I'll admit I'd never had this conversation before. Conversation with a young man who was conceived by in vitro fertilization, artificial insemination to a lesbian mother and raised as the son of a lesbian mother. And here's the interesting I'd not met someone whose history was that before, but now he's old enough to be a graduate student. And not only that, there are catalogs now where someone can just go online and, and, and buy the product and uh, take care of it themselves, and which is completely severed from marriage, is completely severed from the union of a man and a woman, is completely severed from any of the moral context that made marriage marriage. By the way, this young man was saying to me, he's a believer, and his point was, he's never seen how a family's supposed to work. He, he's, he, has, he really didn't have any idea. Uh, he's married, actually got into a, I won't say a fight, that's not right, that's a, that's a bad word. Got into a disagreement with his wife, an argument with his wife. And he needed help because he'd never seen an argument resolved. He was married by a single mom. A lesbian. He'd never seen how this happened before. And by the way, God bless him for being a part of a wonderful Christian gospel-preaching, Bible-believing church and wanting to go to older men and say, okay, I'm, <laughs> how exactly do you do this? Uh, I've never seen it done. Uh, this is... And, and, and what's the point there? The point is not that you didn't have children raised by one parent in the past who didn't see it at home, but they saw it somewhere else real close by. In other words, the culture had held forth an understanding of marriage and how marriage works, but now our culture doesn't hold to that anymore. And so you can be a young man, 22, 23 years old, and never have seen the situation. Uh, one prominent American sociologist pointed out that there are millions and millions of American children who grow up in America and reach the age we associate with adulthood never having seen a wedding because weddings have become incredibly rare in much of America. Or they're completely now confused. So, so how did this happen? Was, a, was some kind of switch flipped in 2000 or somewhere between 2007 and 2013? I want to suggest it begins much earlier. And... and and this is where, as Christians, we need to think about the fact that, yes, even as it appears the world's been turned upside down very quickly, it actually wasn't as quick as we might like to think. And here's the word for us. The challenging thing is most of us and our parents and grandparents were asleep at the switch, so to speak. Theologically and otherwise unengaged, they weren't watching what was happening. They weren't thinking biblically about what was happening. And uh, in some ways, we just kind of let it happen. So, the modern age is when all this took place. The modern age, you can date from many different developments, but let's just say you can't have the modern age without the Enlightenment, without that great turn in human thought, which was a secularizing turn, uh, a, a turn towards subjectivity rather than objectivity, a turn towards the, the well, you often hear it referred to as humanism, the development of of confidence in the human being. Man indeed, as the ancient Greek said, is the measure of all things, Epictetus. The, uh, the, the, the belief that it, it's, it's the human mind that is the greatest thing of all. The Enlightenment was about replacing an aristocracy of nobility and royalty with an aristocracy of mind, an aristocracy of intellect. And, and, and so all the old authorities were now cast away. And the central authority, if you're going to liberate by the intellect humanity, and this means Western Europe at this point, if you're going to liberate human beings from the existing authority, guess who the existing authority is? The church. The Bible. A revealed revelation. 
So that began, but it was mostly amongst the elites. It was an, an elite, an aristocracy of intellect. The average person didn't care a whole lot about the Enlightenment. You really had to go to a university or, uh, or, or, or to be in very rarefied atmosphere for the Enlightenment to have much to do with this. Even in the American founding, most of the figures of the American founding were very much men of the Enlightenment. But, uh, but frankly, uh, and, and, and those ideas are reflected in our founding documents. But, but this didn't really filter down to the popular level because there wasn't much of a way anything filtered down to the popular level. But the second thing that is required for the modern age is mass communications. And, and this is something, again, that most of us just don't, don't really think about. But even into the 19th century, a, a normal middle class, I might say family, might own one, two, three books, something like that, and uh, might have some access to some kind of news. But remember that even if you go back to the, the, the second half of the 19th century, it could take weeks for Americans to find out how they had voted, who they had elected president of the United States. And remember, you don't have to go very far from right here, right here in Raleigh, North Carolina, to find historical markers about battles that were fought in the American Revolution, and in particular in the American Civil War, after the war was officially over. Because the word hadn't gotten to them that the war was over. Um, now we live in the age of mass communications. And, and, and by the way, we lived in the age of mass communications since the last part of the 19th century, especially with the, the ability to have mass publications, and, and, and much of this, some of this was for good. So you had a preacher like Charles Spurgeon in London. He'd preach on Sunday morning, and by Thursday, his sermons would be available in print for the people who worked in the teeming factories of London. They were known as penny pulpit uh, because it was just, just, just the equivalent of a penny, a pence. And, uh, and so that was great, but that had never happened before. You had, you had some printing massively important in the Reformation. But, uh, but that's nothing like what happened in the 19th century. And then along came radio and television. And then the most widespread impact of all, which is the digital revolution. And so now, now you don't really have to, you don't have to own the newspaper to be a publisher. You can be 12. And you're a publisher. One of my favorite cartoons in the New Yorker uh, sometime back had two dogs looking at a laptop. And the, the one dog said, what are you doing? And the other dog said, hey, on the internet, nobody knows you're a dog. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> that's, that's actually true. You can be a dog and, be, you know, and have hundreds of thousands of millions of followers uh, on Twitter. That's just the way it works. But that means that, that means that now there's no funnel of authoritative information. Now, in some ways, that's good. In, in that there's no... There's no elite who can control information. But in a lot of ways, it's bad because a lot of the stuff that's coming out just isn't true. And some of it's rancid. And some of it's racist. And some of it's just horrifying. But that's the problem. If, if you take the faucet off and just let everything flow, then everything's going to flow. But that does mean that the official, powerful, recognized, authorized ways of communication are gone. And so it used to be that in England or, uh, or in the United States, uh, those who at least were perceived as most responsible were in charge of such communication, such information. They had the stewardship of this kind of trust. You think about the rise of American colleges and universities and professors. You know, most of those college presidents, most of the university presidents in America at the turn of the century were all Protestant clergymen. In other words, that, that's, how, that's how much they wanted to make sure things, couldn't get, things can't get too far out of bounds. It's going to be a prominent clergyman. It's going to be the president of, of the university or the local college. But now that's, that's very different. The big shift is secularization. And that, that's one of those words that we use because we can't avoid using it. But to be honest, it's, it's one of those words we often use without a lot of care. So what, what, is it, what does secularization mean? Well, secularization simply means the waning authority of Christianity and the rising authority of, uh, of modern thought. That, that's really what it means. Secular, in its most 
clear essence mean just in terms of its etymology means the the city. Uh, but that's not really what we're looking at here as over against, say, the church. It's that you've got you've got a worldview that is decreasingly shaped even now by the memory of Christianity. Now, secularization could conceivably apply just about anywhere, and so you could, you could, you know, there are two books out right now on secular Buddhism, which is kind of an oxymoron, since Buddhism is not theistic in the first place. But that's not really interesting. What, what's interesting, and, and the problem that became identified as secularization appears only in Western civilization, where it's explicitly Christianity that has lost its influence and lost its authority. It, it loses what's called the binding power, the binding authority. It used to be if Christianity said that's wrong, then the culture said, you're right, that's wrong. If Christianity said that's right, then the, the culture around it said that's right. And it, it used to be that even the psyche of people in our societies was so shaped by that, that people would feel guilty when they did something wrong. And, and they would they wouldn't know they had a problem. And, and the whole worldview shifted. Now, the prophets of secularization, they said, it's going to happen. It's just going to happen. It's, in, it's inevitable, and it's going to happen because when human beings can explain the universe in terms other than in the Bible, then they will. So you have the rise of Darwinian evolution in the 19th century. Richard Dawkins, the most famous of the new atheists, says it took Darwin to be an intellectually fulfilled atheist. What did he mean? It meant it was really hard to be secular when the only explanation he had for the world was Genesis 1-1. And, uh, and until Darwin, the, that he wasn't the first to think in these terms, but he was the first to define a mechanism whereby you might explain this. So the argument is on the other side of the Big Bang, on the other side of quantum physics, on the other side of Darwin, we don't need Genesis anymore. So we'll explain the entire universe in purely secular terms. Out is the very idea of a creator. And here's the thing we need to know. The idea of a B.B. Warfield, the great Presbyterian theologian, nailed this better than anyone I know. B.B. Warfield said, if God created the universe, then everything necessarily follows. Um, so, in other words, if there's a creator, then he gets to say not only what is, but what everything that is means. And, and what goal or telos, what end it's directed to. And, and how, if he made us, then he can tell us how we are supposed to live. He can tell us what's right and what's wrong. But if there is no creator, then we are entirely free agents. And you have to understand, that's what they wanted. They really weren't looking for, and this becomes very evident. It's very evident in Charles Darwin's life, and by the way, in his grandfather's life, Erasmus Darwin, and even in one of the other of his ancestors, Josiah Wedgwood. You have his china, you think it's beautiful? Yes, but it was also driven, his, the Wedgwood family was heavily invested in supporting these alternative explanations to Genesis and that God created the world. Because this would be, if you want to liberate people from the authority of God, you're going to have to say how things exist otherwise. And then secularization continues. It, the, the loss of the binding power of, uh, of theism, and particularly of Christianity. And, uh, and, and yet, we thought we were kind of immune from this. We thought, oh yeah, we can see it happen in Europe. Just look at, uh, at Europe. Look how fast it's secularizing. Look at a country like Germany. And you can see how fast that society is secularized. You look at church-going rates in much of Europe today, even in, 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 in the UK, the United Kingdom. You know, you're looking at only a tiny, tiny number of British people who actually go to church, even on a monthly basis. Uh, yeah, but, that, but here we have lots of churches, and we have lots of churches that are full, and, and we've, got, we've got Christian universities and Christian colleges, and the vast majority of Americans say they believe in God, and the vast majority of Americans say that they identify as Christians. So we're different. The sociologists called this American exceptionalism. And, uh, and, and we looked like we were an exception until very recently. And in just the last 20 years, we've had the rise of very clearly identified secular people in America at a percentage never, never, we're talking about at least 20 plus percent of all Americans and 30 percent of all Americans under age 25. And as I talked about in the briefing just in recent days, you're talking about at least a third of all the freshmen who show up on American college and university campuses. They identify as having no religious affiliation. Now, we're having to even find a new way to do this. This requires a new vocabulary. 
And I've discovered you've got to be careful with this because I was on uh, a major radio broadcast and uh, then on television the same night, I ran into the same problem both ways because of this research. I said, look, the fastest growing religious group in America is nuns. And uh, I meant N-O-N-E-S, uh, those who have no religious affiliation, they're known as nuns. That's not the way it sounds. You know, they packed, pictured a bunch of Catholic sisters coming as the largest, you know, growing religious movement in America. Not so. Uh, we are not threatened by uh, a, uh, an army of nuns in the U- in U.S. We're threatened by, or at least we're observing and, and troubled by the rise of an incredible number and percentage of Americans who say, I have no religious affiliation whatsoever. Now, as a theologian, one of the things I always like to point out, and this is, uh, I wrote a book on the new atheism when it was new, and uh, have continuing conversation with people, I always remind people there's no such thing as just an atheist atheist. There's no such thing as just a secular, secular person. They're, they're secular or atheist as contrasted with something. So, for instance, you talk to an atheist in a non Christian land, that is a land that wasn't influenced by Christianity, and you talk to an atheist in England or the United States, you got a different form of atheism. Because the specific God that the new atheists reject is the God of the Bible. Uh, you've got to have some theism. It also drives them crazy when you point this out, but you have to have theism before you can have atheism, because even the word is just an alpha primitive, those of you who know Greek, put in front of theism. It's just theism, yes, atheism means no theism. You can't even, they don't even like the word they're known by. That's their quandary. But you do have this vast number of intentionally, self-consciously secular people. But that's not really what the big issue is. The big issue is the people who think they're Christians but are secular. Just a few weeks ago, Peter Berger died, sociologist at Boston University. I think the most influential, rightly so, the most brilliant sociologist uh, of our times, clearly. And, and he lived, he was writing in his 10th decade of life. He was writing major academic books in his 10th decade of life. God bless him. I want to do that. Uh, I mean, writing something sensical at any decade of your life is an achievement, but in your 10th decade of life, having people waiting for your next book, wouldn't that be amazing? He died just, uh, just a few weeks ago. And he's a very intellectually honest man. Uh, by the way, when he was just early dealing with secularization, he and his graduate students did what they called a longitudinal study of, uh, of the most and least religious nations on earth. And again, he's not measuring Christian uh, religiosity, just religiosity. And, uh, and he came up with the fact that, uh, that the most religious people on earth were in India and the least religious people on earth were in Sweden. So Sweden's the least religious, India's the most religious. So one hotshot reporter said, what's the United States? And he said, it's a nation of Indians ruled over by an elite of Swedes. And uh, there's a lot of truth in that. You can, see the, you, you can see exactly what he meant. And it was Berger who helps us to understand that America becomes more secular as you move closer to the coast. It becomes more secular as you move closer to a campus. And it moves more secular as you move closer to a city. And it moves more secular as you move younger. So closer to the coast, closer to the campus, closer to the city, and younger. That's where the secular trend goes. Peter Berger lived long enough to develop a theory and to revise it twice. That doesn't often happen because, I mean, he was intellectually honest enough to say, hey, that's what I argued, and this part of it was right, that part of it was clearly wrong. So he used to say that secularism was linear, and it would happen like it happened in Europe. It would happen in the United States the same way. This is really helpful to us, folks, because he said no. He came back and said no, it didn't happen in the United States the same way because in Britain and in Europe, people who ceased to believe said, I cease to believe. They identified as ex-Christians, or they said, I'm not a Christian. But he said in the United States, there's the development of secularized Christianity, which means you have people who think they are Christians, but their entire worldview has been secularized. And uh, so that's very helpful to us. helps to explain why we have so many people who say, I'm a Christian, but there's no Christianity. In terms of historic biblical Christianity, that's at all evident. The moral revolution came... As, uh, as a part of this secularization. And it was hand in hand, because if you're going to change the society, sex is the way to do it. Sex is, sex is so basic as a human temptation, so fundamental to the ordering of human life, that if you can change it, you'll change the entire civilization. If you can change sex, if you can redefine marriage, then if you can even redefine gender, for crying out loud, then you can redefine 
all the civilization, every aspect of the culture. And then you can coerce the revolution because you make people obey the new morality and pay a significant cost for trying to live by the old morality. So when did that happen? Well, here's where I want to say one of the first places it happened was in the early 20th century. So here's a little fact a lot of people don't think about. In the early 20th century, every single Christian church, every single branch of historical Christianity, every single Christian denomination condemned birth control under every circumstance. Now, I'm not here to debate that issue ad infinitum. I'm simply to say it should tell us something that every single church and every single historic branch of Christendom and every single denomination condemned birth control in the beginning of the 20th century. I think that's shocking to most Christians. I think, well, how could that have happened? Well, first of all, birth control was associated with illicit sexual activity. The idea was that if you have a married husband and wife, then children are not a disaster. Uh, they are the natural byproduct of marriage and are to be celebrated and received as such. And, and, that one, and remember, they had big families, because especially given infant mortality and other things. There's a recognition that, uh, that you know, big families were, were honoring God, they were important, and so you had lots of children. And if you were happily married, you had lots of children. And uh, the first church to break this was the Church of England. And it was late, it was only in the late 1920s that the Church of England said there might be certain circumstances in which a married couple might uh, use certain forms of birth control. But remember that back then, birth control was not much to begin with. Just to be blunt, um, it wasn't very effective. There weren't very good mechanisms. All that changed with the pill. And, uh, and this is where you look at it and say, well, nobody was really watching that, but between say 1930 with the Church of England, and 1960 with the development of the pill, that's 30 years. So it's just a portion of a normal human lifetime. Everything changed. And by the way, the pill didn't come by accident. It was driven by moral revolutionaries. It was driven by people who wanted to remove the threat of children from illicit sexual activity and uh, to give us control over our bodies, women control over their bodies in particular, because the argument was, if women have to have babies, then they can't possibly be in the workforce as men who do not have to have babies would be. Again, there's a certain logic there, very clear in the Roe v. Wade arguments uh, from uh, the pro-abortion side, very clear in terms of the funding. Margaret Sanger, let me just mention one name, and others who, uh, who funded the... Uh, the, the pill. But here's the thing. When the pill was available, evangelicals just thought, here's another good pill. Uh, there was no evangelical conversation about the morality of birth control. None. There were, there's, almost a, there's, a, there's a little exchange of Christianity today, but there's almost nothing. Which tells us that American evangelical Christians had ceased to think of that as a significant moral issue. And when it happened, they didn't think of it as a significant moral issue. I think part of it was just a pill instinct. You know, we had penicillin that came along. That's a great pill. Take it. Uh, we had other miracle drugs that came along. They're in a pill. Take it. Here's another pill. Take it. America's inclination to take pills uh, came, uh, came in the second half of the 20th century and in a big way. Uh, you can draw a direct line from that to what were called mommy's little helpers. You may remember Valium and Lithium and things like that in the 1960s and the 70s and even today's opioid epidemic because the idea was Here's a pill, take it. Uh, very little question about the consequences. But American evangelicals really didn't think about this, and yet that opened the door, because you can't have a sexual revolution with babies. Can't happen. Cannot happen. The greatest firewall on the, in any major change in human sexual morality was children, babies. And uh, that just made marriage the only institution recognized where that's supposed to happen. And the pill broke all things loose. And American evangelicals just went swimmingly along. The second thing American evangelicals did not know was divorce. Did not take significant serious, uh, did not take divorce with significant seriousness, with adequate seriousness. Uh, just kind of accepted if the law changes, then it must be right. It was one of the stupidest, most incompetent, unfaithful moves of American evangelicals. 
Because that's the other thing that the Christian church had agreed upon for nearly 2,000 years was what the Bible taught on divorce. By the way, agents of a moral revolution are not always who you think they are. So it's easy to look and say, well, liberal Democrats, they're the lead. And they are. They are and, and look, they are now sold out to it to the extent that the Democratic Party, you can't possibly uh, be taken seriously in the Democratic Party unless you're all in for the sexual revolution. But the governor who signed the worst legislation in American history on abortion and on divorce was Ronald Reagan as the governor of California. And uh, he did not mean, I think, it's honestly worth saying, to, to create a moral revolution. But re remember that these things really weren't really thought through by those who would be clear. Here's the cost. He signed the bill of no-fault divorce. Because before that, you had to prove fault in a divorce. There had to be grounds for a divorce, deeply rooted in biblical Christianity. There had to be grounds for a divorce. And, uh, and Ronald Reagan, himself divorced, felt that that was very tortuous to families. So we'll just pass no-fault divorce. Between the late 1960s and the mid-1970s, no-fault divorce spread across the United States like wildfire. Uh, the abortion bill he signed, by the way, was uh, the most liberal abortion bill of any state at the time uh, there in California. And, and, and I'm, not, I'm not saying that uh, to condemn Ronald Reagan. He bears responsibility for that. But what's really interesting is that when he ran for president in 1980, he had to write a little book entitled Abortion, the Conscience of a Nation to document how he had come to pro-life uh, convictions, which I believe were very genuinely held by the time he ran for president, because he had seen what had occurred in California on abortion in the legislation that he had signed. But the point is that when divorce took place, you didn't hear evangelicals say, uh, the world's changing. We better, we better really think about what it means to be a biblical and gospel people in terms of ordering our lives on this question. So we didn't do it on birth control, and we didn't do it on divorce. And then abortion came. And abortion's just the logical next step. In fact, legally, those of you who follow constitutional law, it's the Griswold decision in the 1960s, on birth control that led to the Roe v. Wade decision. It's the very same logic. It's the very same invocation of this new right of sexual liberty and personal privacy. And um, that, so all this happened. And then American evangelicals began to wake up with the abortion issue. Why? I still don't know. I still don't know. I was 13 years old. Not, not yet 13 years old, actually, when the Roe v. Wade decision was handed down. And uh, my mother was not much of an activist on anything. She was busy being the mother of four kids, of which I was the oldest. But, uh, but she was really troubled by the reality of abortion and became very involved in, uh, in the pro-life movement right there in 1973, 1974, 1975. And what was interesting to me in retrospect was how few evangelicals were involved in that discussion at all. Evangelicals didn't become highly involved in the pro-life movement until the 1980s. You might say at least the late 1970s. A lot of these issues were clarified in the 1980 election. But the point is, you have many people on the other side of the Obergefell decision because the, uh, the, the legalization of same-sex marriage finally got their attention. But the point is, if we have been going to hell in a handbasket, so to speak, it didn't begin in 2015. It began in the entire project of the modern age, and we are more in it than we recognize. Very key to this entire project is the idea of personal autonomy. And I promise you that those of us here tonight think more in terms of personal autonomy, a secular notion of personal autonomy, than we would like to think. When we look in the mirror, we don't see how these ideas fundamental to this giant revolution of which we now see the aftermath are, are shaping our own thoughts, our own intuitions, our own instincts. And the reality is we're deeply troubled by these things not just because we believe that they are wrong and not just because we are very concerned about a society that is trying to liberate itself from any rational understanding, not just because we believe that marriage is right and that marriage must mean the union of a man and a woman. Not just because we believe that uh, in the objectivity of truth and not in moral relativism. Not just because we think of in terms that we believe are right 
about right and wrong, it's because we believe this can't possibly lead to human flourishing. This can't possibly lead to human happiness. And when we come back after the break, we're going to look at the Gospel of Matthew and be reminded of the greatest commandment that Jesus gave us and the second which is likened to it. And the issue is not just how do we look at this in terms of answering, how did this happen? And we're on the aftermath of all this. And, then, and not only in terms of taking the hostility seriously. We have to understand the hostility being directed at us is a hostility that is honest. They see the Christian church as the last of the resistance to the moral revolution. And they can't, they can't understand why we won't just surrender and go along. Because to their mind, it would just be so much better for us if we did. Um, and they hold very powerful levers of influence. We are going to be increasingly isolated in the society. We're going to be increasingly uh, marginalized in the society. We're, it, it, they will call it deprivileging, or uh, it'll be the loss of privilege. But any way you want to look at it, what's going to happen is that every young Christian is going to have to pay social capital, is going to pay a social cost, a moral cost, a cultural cost, just to claim the name of Christ. Maybe just to be a member of your church than was envisioned in any previous age of Christianity and from the Middle Ages on. Uh, open hostility. You know, most of our churches, um, most Christians expect to be loved by the community. What does it take to be faithful when you're not loved? And, and what, what does it take to hold fast to biblical Christianity when you don't gain social capital by being identified with our churches? You could lose it. What's it going to be like for this church when just to be a member of your church is enough to keep someone from getting a job? What, how are we going to respond when our children are cut off from certain professions simply because they can't, by conviction and faithfulness to Christ, sign on to certain moral required affirmations. Uh, these are questions we better think about. And we better put it in a larger frame. We are in the aftermath of something big. It, it, you're not exaggerating. It's actually bigger than it seems. Because it's not just isolated headlines that are coming at us. It's a massive turning the world upside down. And the question is, how does the church maintain its sanity in all this? How do we respond to the world around us? How do we deal with our neighbors in the midst of this? How do we, how do we show up with grace and with truth? Those are big questions. The Christian church has struggled with this before. The Christian church has been in what's rightly defined as the aftermath before. When we come back, we're going to talk about one particular example of when that was and turn to Scripture and figure out what we're supposed to learn together. But I do understand the necessity of a break, and I think that time is right now.